The reading is taken from 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 12 to 21, and can be found on page 1222 in the Church Bibles. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. But it's 2 Peter 1, 12 to 21, and on the back of the uh, um, song sheet this morning, there is an outline which I hope you'll find helpful. But how do we know that the Christian take on life is true. And so how can we be sure of the faith which we adhere to? Well, last week we looked at the first half of 2 Peter, which majors on our experience of the Christian life and our growth in character. Verse 5 says, Add to your faith goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, kindness, Love. And the outcome, verse 8, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we read about the character of Jesus, we absorb into our characters. It is intentional, but we're aided, of course, by the Spirit of Jesus working in us and with us. And that is what the Christian experience is all about. But how can we be sure that the Christian faith is true and not a myth? Well, deep down, I think many of us feel slightly vulnerable at this point. We may be able to explain the difference being a Christian has made to our lives, and that can indeed be impressive. But people can make two responses to that. They can dismiss it saying, well, rather patronisingly, good for you. I'm glad it's done you some good, but I don't think it'll do me any good. Or they can follow you. But what does their faith rest on? 
it rests on you and the good it's done you, which is not a terribly strong foundation. People should be attracted to the Christian faith and to Jesus Christ who personifies it by Christians, but whether it's true or not lies not simply in my life or your life or their life, but in the outside world, the real world. The faith rests on whether or not God has said and done certain things in our world or not. It is essentially an historical question, not a historical question that is only of interest to antiquarians, but a historical question that has contemporary, everyday ramifications for everyone. The issue is whether the Christian faith is true in the public domain, which has repercussions for our personal lives. The good news is that we can be very sure of our faith, which will help us in living it and give us a great deal more confidence in explaining it to others, which we often feel rather wobbly about. So I'd like us this morning to see how Peter tackles this question. It comes up in our passage today. You'll find it, as I've said, in uh, page 1222. And I'd like to start at verse 16, though we'll come back to verses 12 to 15 at the end. We have the apostolic testimony. That is what the New Testament's authority is based on. Now, Peter here, writing this letter, is near the end of his life. He is aware of many false teachers around, both inside and outside of the church. They're all set to lead Christians astray. They had their views, and they said of Peter that he made up his views. They're just his ideas. Well, let's see how he tackles that accusation. Verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can easily see how they made that accusation that he made up the facts and details. For example, at the second coming, if you just turn over the page where you'll come to uh, chapter 3, 10 to 13... Peter writes about the second coming, the one that, well, it's still in our future. It was certainly in his future. It hasn't happened yet. Peter writes, and doubtless he'd been telling everyone, quote, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And then verse 12, that day will bring about destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Well, that sounds pretty far-fetched. How does Peter know about something which is in the future? How does he know that Jesus Christ is God and that he is going to return one day and recreate a new entire universe? How does he know that? Well, Peter's response is that he has seen the power of Christ already, even though it will never be seen again until he comes that second time. He says, quote, We do not follow cleverly invented stories, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him 
from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this voice, Peter says, that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. He says he has seen Jesus as he really is, and so is an eyewitness of his majesty. He's referring to an event in Jesus' earthly life when Jesus took Peter, James and John to the top of most probably Mount Hermon, but it might have been Mount Tabor. And there before their eyes, Jesus' earthly body was transfigured into his heavenly body, his glorified body, the kind of body that we will enjoy at the second coming when there is a new heaven and a new earth. The kind of body that Elijah, who died about 900 years before, Moses, who died about 300 year, 1,300 years before, the kind of body that they also had as they were next to the transfigured Jesus on that mountain. It was mind-blowing. But Peter says it happens. He, James and John, were eyewitnesses of it. And the Christian faith is based on eyewitness accounts. Seeing is believing. So if you'd like to turn to John's Gospel, which you'll find on page 1089, John 20, verse 8, 1089, we'll see it. It's about the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And in chapter 20, verse 8, we read, The other disciple, that's Peter, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. Though notice verse 9, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. 2020, we read how Jesus appeared to the disciples and showed them his hands and side. Disciples' response, they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now, Thomas hadn't been with them on that particular occasion, and he said that he wouldn't believe unless he too saw and touched Jesus. And Jesus, a week later, allowed Thomas to see and touch him. But that was it. That was the end of the seeing. The apostles and others saw so that we might be able to believe on the evidence that they put before us. So John 20, 29, 30, Jesus told them, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Then John comments, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There was a period of six weeks between the resurrection and the ascension when over 500 different people on a dozen different occasions, actually saw the risen Christ. And it's their eyewitness accounts that have been provided 
to enable us to be able to believe. You see, Jesus couldn't keep on coming back and dying and rising in every part of the world, in every generation. So our belief has to be based on what happened then and what they saw and recorded for us. So Peter's response to the accusation that it was all made up was no, it's based on certain facts that happened and on the interpretation and explanation of those facts. But facts on their own can be ambiguous. Sometimes what you see requires interpretation. Even when you see an event, it can still be ambiguous. It's a rather kind of um, amusing, but at least initially gross example. You may have seen that picture where there is a young lad. He's standing with his back to the camera. He's in the gents. He's in front of all the urinals. And facing him are half a dozen very attractive women who are going, <gasps> they're shocked until you realise they're wallpaper. You see, you need to have the bigger picture you need to have the explanation in order to understand what is actually happening. You see, um, on the Mount of uh, Transfiguration, when he had seen the glorified Jesus, oh no, sorry, um, I turned over two pages. So many, many Jews, for example, saw Jesus die. For them it meant that Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah since dying on a cross is not what divine rescuers do in their scheme of things. We need facts to be understood, interpreted, explained if we are to make sense of them. So Peter said in, this, in his first letter, you might remember, Jesus Christ died, which is a fact, it was an event, it happened, for our sins, which is an interpretation. Facts interpreted make all the difference. But whose interpretation is it? Can't people just say to Peter, thank you very much, but isn't that just your spin on events? So is it Peter's or God's interpretation? Well, on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's in Mark 9, 1012, if you want to look it up, when he had seen the glorified Jesus, we have, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Peter didn't know what to make of it. And if we have to base our faith on what Peter reckoned, we would be in a right mess. But we don't, because God gives Peter, James and John the definitive interpretation of what was going on. So Mark 9, 7. Then the cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love, listen to him. So we in the 20th century don't have to rely on what Peter may have guessed was going on, you know, his private, uninformed opinion. We have what God says, and he tells us. Who Jesus is, God's son. If we want to know what he's up to, don't listen to other people claiming to have heard heavenly voices because they'll lead you up the garden path. Listen to him, listen to Jesus. He will provide the authoritative interpretation of what he is up to. So what we 
have and how we know that these things are true is that God has acted in our world, that God has told either directly or through Jesus to the apostles who were eyewitnesses of such things, who he was, what he was up to, why he came. And those apostolic eyewitnesses recorded it for us to know too. Now that accounts for the New Testament. But what about the Old Testament, the prophetic word, and the, its authority? How do we derive that? Well, Peter tells us, verse 19. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, largely because what they predicted actually came true and they could realise it. Because it wasn't dreamt up by the prophets. No, they were inspired by God. Verse 20, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along or driven. It's the word used of a sailing ship being driven against the rocks, but in this case, driven by the Holy Spirit. The true prophets in the Old Testament are often very reluctant to speak. They usually suffered as a consequence, but they felt compelled by God to do so. So again we have God's actions, events in the history of his people, the people of Israel. Then we have the divine interpretation of those events given to us through the prophets, and those prophets recorded those events for us to read so what we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament are writings by a unique group of men, the prophets and the apostles, who have recorded for us the very words of God. This is his message of salvation and is definitive for every generation that ever lives upon the earth. So let's take away three lessons from this. You'll find the first in verse 20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. The Bible, in other words, is God's word. It's therefore not open to revision. What he said in the first century or any other century about salvation is exactly what he wants to say today. If salvation was only possible through Christ then, it is only possible through Christ now. If certain things were morally wrong then, they are morally wrong now. Now, of course, we believe in progressive revelation. Not everything is told us in the first chapter of Genesis. Adam didn't know all the things, many of the, most of the things which we know. <coughs> we believe, for example, that in the Old Testament, chunks of it are taken up by the whole kind of sacrificial system. And that was educational, that was illustrative to, to, to really point us to how God does need to have um, atonement for the sins which we are committed in order for us to be reconciled to one another. But of course, that didn't really work. But it was for us to understand how Christ's sacrifice, the one perfect sacrifice, would work. And his having worked, we don't need all that to be done anymore, although it is educational, it is illustrative. Now, given what God um, says about salvation, what he says about how we Christians should live, 
Um, sure, we change the, the style and the packaging, but the product is still the good old tried and tested one and not some newfangled idea dreamt up by others who think they know better even if, as in Peter's day, they claim to be incredibly spiritual. That's the first lesson. The second, verse 19, we do well to pay attention to Scripture as to a light shining in a dark place. We do live in a new dark age in many ways. The first dark ages were in the days of King Arthur and Merlin and Tintagel and all that stuff. They were a time of pagan superstition and all was ignorance, prejudice, injustice and cruelty that went with it. Many commentators think that we are in or heading towards a second dark age. You see it in programmes like Mysteries, in films like uh, other ones like The X-File. You see the growing irrationality in the public domain. If you feel you want to do it, you should be allowed to do it. But if you go and reason and say why something isn't a good idea, you get hounded down in a sort of volume of ignorance. In other words, we've given up on rational debate, sadly. But to steer a clear path through darkness, we need light. That light that, that God provides for us in Scripture. How long do we need it for? Can we ever do without it? Well, what does Peter say? Pay attention to it until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. The morning star is the star that appears before the sun rises. In other words, until Jesus Christ objectively appears in all his glory for all to see and we are fully inwardly illuminated so that we are able then to take on board the fullness of that appearance of Christ at his second coming. When there is perfect correlation between the light without and the light within, only then will we not have to listen to the prophets and the apostles. Up until then, we must listen to them because we don't have the privilege of seeing and hearing Christ face to face. Since their day, no one has had a sure word from God about these matters of salvation and the way to eternal life. And those who come along claiming that they have can't have since there has been no Christ around for them to see or hear. So we need to beware. There are always professing Christians around who are in effect saying that they know Jesus better and know what he wants from us better than the apostles and the prophets do. They may come along in various guises. They may well come along as theological liberals and say, times have changed. We must move on. We must get with the programme. We understand things differently today. And it's very natural to want to be contemporary and relevant. Maybe they're even motivated by trying to make it easier for people to believe. But in their reduction, they end up with a different Jesus. And does it work? Well, no. Because their churches are empty and they're strapped for cash. Or it can be among the more seemingly enthusiastic. 
But sometimes if you visit such churches, you'll find very often the Bible may be read, but it isn't referred to. Or if it's referred to, it's not properly explained. It's used as a peg to hang whatever the latest fad that the speaker has in mind. All the time, the speakers have got a biblical frame of reference. They will probably stay reasonably on track. But it is the next generation, the one that follows them, that doesn't have a biblical frame of reference and which swallows an impressionistic methodology which is going to drift further and further away from real Christianity and with it the real Jesus and end up in the dark again. Now the people that Peter were countering thought the morning star had risen in their own hearts. They thought they were enlightened and they downplayed or even disregarded the apostolic testimony. Fortunately, they didn't last even though, of course, they reappear in different guises in each generation. To know the mind of God and to know Jesus Christ, we need to study the scriptures. And then thirdly and lastly, verse 15, we must remember these things. Peter knows they are firmly established in the faith because it is a faith based on apostolic testimony. He knows he's soon going to shed his tent, as he calls his mortal body. He knows there are phonies around who claim a hotline to things spiritual. And he wants his readers to remember his record. That's where they will find the genuine Jesus and nowhere else. It was and is so easy for people to come along with loads of sincerity, using all the same Christian religious language, which with many points often in common, but what they are focusing on, what they are saying is something very different indeed. Let me end with this diagram that you have on the outline. If you were the devil and you wanted to wreck Christianity in the 21st century, which relationship would you concentrate on distorting or severing with your trident? Would you go for the vertical relationship to God in prayer? Or would you go to the historically horizontal one, going all out to break our link with the past, to break our link with the apostles and the prophets? Now, of course, the devil doesn't like us praying, but if he can sever the link with the historic scriptures, with the eyewitness the eyewitnesses of God's actions in salvation history and God's authoritative commentary on those events, then our prayer life and relationship with God will just wither because it has no sure foundation. It has no definition. We will wander. We don't know the kind of God we're praying to and we will become mystics eventually creating God in our own image, who we then naturally enough will find disappointing. And so we ditch him altogether, though we've ditched a false understanding of him. It is a sad cycle that has repeated itself for generations and sadly will go on repeating itself until Jesus appears for us all to see. 
But praise God, we can avoid it by staying in touch with the people who saw and heard the genuine article and wrote the scriptures for us, which is what we call the apostolic faith. Amen.